Well, we're going to be continuing on in 1 Corinthians, looking at chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 today. Um, I'll warn you on the front end that this is a difficult text. Uh, I've been, uh, I remember first reading it as a, as a new Christian. I was like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I think you'll find that as we get into it as well. Uh, I've been excited about getting to study it and preach on it so that I can uh, learn and understand it better, but also, um, not meaning this in a bad way, but, but uh, nervous about preaching on it, uh, to have a, a deadline to discern uh, what the Lord is trying to teach us here. Um, just uh, to give you a sense of the difficulty, I, just two notes from two different commentators. One says, this passage is one of the most difficult passages in the letter. Paul uses expressions and ideas that he apparently expected to be transparent to the Corinthians, but which have been opaque to most readers ever since. Another says it is as peering through a glass darkly. Um, uh, I think other preachers have found it that way too, and not to belabor this point, but I was really struck looking at sermon audio and just comparing uh, the number of sermons on the last passage versus this one, and it drops by, say, 85%. So, so others experienced some quaking in the boots as they, as they got into this. Um, I hope you won't feel quite that way. Um, I found that the vast majority of this text is, is abundantly clear, um, and atop of that, uh, very, very relevant. And so uh, let's, let's listen closely. This is God's inspired word, and let's strive to make or let the plain things uh, be the main things, as um, uh, I can't remember what's his name says. And so let's, let's hear uh, God's word. Chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. 
If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Dear Almighty God, as we do come to this text, we pray for the particular blessing and help of Your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that You would help me to be faithful and clear with Your text. I pray, Lord, that You would protect us from distortions and confusion. I pray, Lord, that You would help me to preach with appropriate boldness and clarity. And I pray, Lord, for the sake of Your people, that, Lord, You would help them to understand Your Word. You have a message for us today from Your Word. I pray, Lord, that You would affect our hearts by it and, and change us, that You would make us to see Christ more clearly and to see how we can emulate Christ in the work that You've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so what do you do uh, with this? It reminds me of a story that Jane Dykstra, uh, many of you probably remember Jane. Um, she was a, uh, a wonderful woman uh, with some, um, I don't know, uh, spunk. And um, she told me a story uh, one time when I was visiting her. It was, this is the story. She was walking into church one day as a little girl, and she found herself accosted, as she puts it, by the pastor. He met her at the door immediately, and he said, where is Das Hut? And Jane, in her own little way, said, Das Hut? And so he asked more forcefully, where is Das Hut? And so she responded again in her special way, well, where is yours? And he quickly replied, well, I'm a man, so I don't wear a hoot. And Jane said, well, I'm not going to wear a hoot. And of course, as you can imagine, that didn't go over very well. And uh, perhaps it's already occurred to you, but uh, das hoot is Dutch for the hat, all right? And... Um, what was causing such a stir was that that minister understood Jane as uh, violating the command that Paul raises in this text. But for us, it just really sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? What's the big deal about a little hat? And the short answer is gender distinctions. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. But even that idea of gender distinction sounds a little strange to us. We live in a culture that has already answered the does gender matter question with an absolute no, and it's striving to move on. And increasingly, so is the church, and, and why shouldn't it? There doesn't appear to be any scientific evidence to justify distinguishing between the genders. Our culture has very little tolerance for those who try. Their only explanation for doing so is that on the lighter side, you're blind or you've been brainwashed or, or you're a dinosaur or something like that. Or on the heavier side, um, you're actually, the reason that you do that is because you're, you're a bigot or you're part of some kind of a hate group. And as the old church uh, that's still trying to hold on to something like that, we, we struggle, struggle to articulate why. Why holding on to old-time gender distinction still matters, and then to know how we should do that. 
Well, as it happens, the Corinthians were struggling here too, but for a different reason. Rather than cultural pressure, uh, they're responding to Pauline pressure. In Galatians 3.28, you may know, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is neither male nor female. For you are all one or equal or indistinguishable in Christ Jesus. And so, the question is, has Christ erased gender distinctions in the church? At least some of the Corinthians were, were taking Paul that way, and as a result, they're abandoning this practice of wearing head coverings in the church. And that's where we find Paul here. And I, I think his answer is helpful to us both. First, he addresses the principle behind gender's distinctions, second, the practice, third, the proof, and fourth, he pleads with them to hold on to them. And so let's look at these in turn. First, the principle. Paul says, verse 2, Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And at that, you just have to say, wow. Paul's saying, I commend you or I praise you to the Corinthians. Is this the same Corinthians? What a strikingly different tone from, the, from the, almost the whole of the past ten chapters. But also think about what Paul's commending them for. It's their thoughtful remembering of Paul does that sound like how Paul's been talking to them in the past? Okay. Their thoughtful remembering of Paul and what he's taught them in everything, and more specifically, they're maintaining the traditions, meaning not those things, uh, those man-made things, those despicable things, but, but those core fundamental doctrines and practices that make our faith our faith, that make, makes it Christian. In other words, you could say Paul is praising the Corinthians for their good intentions, these are men and women of a pure heart. And yet we only have uh, one verse there. Paul moves on in verse 3 to say essentially that they're not quite there yet. He says, but I want you to understand that despite your good, good and, and praiseworthy intentions, you're actually starting to head off in the wrong direction. And where is that? Well, it's res- with respect to how they think about gender-specific authority, He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, the gender hierarchy in marriage and the church is not erased by Christ, but affirmed by Christ. In the same way that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is our Heavenly Father, so the head of a wife is her husband. And that, just as in these other relationships, irreversibly. Egalitarianism, or that approach, is is an unacceptable one. It's kind of like uh, what's happening here. A a parent, when they they notice one of their children starting to drift away from something. Say that they're drifting away from doing their homework, for instance. It's not that the child, though it can be, it's not that they're trying to be insubordinate, but that they don't understand why that matters. And so what happens there? Well, the parent pulls them aside gently, right? And and they explain, again, why we do homework. 
It's not just because we don't have anything better to do, but, but because we want to learn something. And so you should, you should maintain the practice. And that's, that's what Paul is seeking to do here and seeing how the Corinthians are beginning to drift away from maintaining the practice of gender distinctions. He's pulling them aside and reminding them of the principle that stands behind it. And as a result, they're supposed to realize that they're maintaining this practice matters. And so how exactly? We'll point to the practice. He says, verse 4 and 5, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, excuse me, uncovered, dishonors her head. Did you catch the difference? It's slight, but it's a different practice for each gender. For the man to worship with his head covered is to his shame, but for the woman to worship with her head covered is to her honor. But it also brings out the inherent connection in Paul's mind between the principle and the practice. Maintaining these distinctions between the genders is not merely a matter of preference or organization, but because, the principle, because of the principle that stands behind it, it's a matter of obedience and disobedience, righteousness or unrighteousness, honor and dishonor. And that, interestingly, not only to yourself or your own head, but for everyone in, for, to use the military, military illustration whenever I can, your chain of command. It's, it's to your husband and his head, the Lord, and to his head, your heavenly Father. It's a kind of chain of honor or dishonor with repercussions that stretch up to the highest possible level. And yet, the Corinthians still appear to be asking themselves, why? Why is this specific expression of the principle, the practice of wearing a head covering in church, so essential? And perhaps you're wondering the same. Well, if you turn to verse 5 and 6 again, Paul tells us, he says, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And so you might be looking around right now and wondering, okay, who got a haircut recently? And I see some of you did. But seriously, can, can you see what's, what's happening here? Paul's, Paul's justification is a product of his culture and of pragmatism. For instance, why must a wife wear a head covering? Is it because something in creation or the law of God dictates that she must wear a head covering? And the answer to that is no. It's because in this culture, it is shameful for a woman not to. It's, as Paul puts it, as if her head were shaven. And that was a genuinely shameful, awful, disgusting thing in this context. It's, it's the manner in which prostitutes wore their hair. It's what would be done to, say, a woman if she was caught in such a grievous sin as adultery. And that's because in the ancient Near East, long hair was a distinguishing mark of femininity, it's why later in verse 15, Paul even refers to a woman's long hair as her glory. And that's why a pragmatic exploration of alternatives brings him back to the practice again of a head covering, 
Again, he says in verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, if, for instance, a wife won't follow the normal cultural practice, then, then she should cut her hair short, i.e. try some other way to express the principle. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, since these alternatives are untenable options in our culture, let her cover her head. Let her stick with the normal cultural practice of wearing a head covering, i.e. this practice is culturally and pragmatically the most convenient and respectable expression of the principle. And yet, Paul, seemingly anticipating the questions, returns to fortify the main principle that stands behind it. Point three, the proof. He says, verse seven and following, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then he adds, because of the angels. And at this, in our day and age, we might just marvel. And not only for the comment, because of the angels, but because you just can't say stuff like that out loud today. It's not allowed. Even in conservative circles, it sounds strong. Doesn't it sound a little strong? Haven't we moved past such primitive, patriarchal perspectives on gender? Hasn't science proven our equality and general interchangeability? In fact, if anything, aren't, aren't women, don't they have the upper hand or the higher ground? After all, they're the only ones who can, who can bear children. Perhaps we can beat them in the Olympics, but, but everything else. And yet, despite how scandalous this might sound today, we should notice that Paul's justification rests not on his scientific research or his culture here. But God's original design for men and women in creation before the fall and that means this isn't a culture or a science issue, but a God-ordained creation mandate. Paul is saying that God created men and women differently on purpose in order to signify their different roles. And so what is that precisely? Well, while both, we, we should be clear, are ultimately for God, made in the image of God, and for the glory of God, the man occupies that role more directly and the woman more indirectly. If we were to follow Paul's meticulously systematic logic, man is the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. And so, the man's role is also to take a direct or more direct concern for the Lord, and the woman a more direct concern for the man. And again, all of this irreversibly. Paul takes pains to, to enunciate the irreversibility of these roles. And so this isn't a matter of aptitude, who's the most spiritual or faithful or steadfast or any of those things, but that God, in the beginning, before the fall, distinguished between the sexes on purpose in order for them to assume different roles. And yet we also, and Paul is careful to do this, need to be on guard against overextending these trajectories. He continues very quickly 
in verse 11 and 12 with these words. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In other words, we need to be careful not to misconstrue the strength of God's previous comments so as to inappropriately elevate the value of men or trivialize the value of women. And so how? Well, I think we could acknowledge that one of the most significant obstacles to our embracing God's design for gender-based authority comes from our conflating God's economy of value with the world's economy of value. You see, the world equates authority with value. They're one and the same. It says if you're higher up, then you're worth more. And if you're lower down, well, then exactly the opposite. You're more disposable. But that's not the case here. In the infinite wisdom of God, He has made men and women dependent on one another and then both together wholly and fully dependent on Him. It's quite a lot like the dimension that we find in the relationship between the Father and the Son. Just as the Son's voluntary submission to the Father doesn't denigrate His value relative to the Father, so the wife's submission to her husband does not denigrate her value relative to His. And therefore, while we're to preserve the authority structure God has put in place, we're also to be careful to preserve the equal value, worth, and inherent dignity that God has intentionally and purposefully and absolutely assigned to the sexes. And then finally, after having laid out the justifications for each, Paul appeals to their own sensibilities, point for Paul's plea. He says, verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Might not occur to us so quickly, but the key phrase here is the unique nuance to God. Paul talks about prayer frequently in his letters, but this is the only place in any of them that he adds this particular nuance, the object of prayer, God. And that's, of course, implied in all the other instances of prayer. We're not praying to someone else to, to marry or something like that. But, but he does so here to bring out the incongruity between their actions and their profession. It's to say, if God ordained these gender distinctions, is it really proper for you to violate them in the very act of your worshiping Him? And from this, Paul appeals on the basis of common sense and culture. He says, verse 14 and 15, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. As we've already mentioned, in this culture, long hair is a sign of femininity, short hair a sign of masculinity, and so the idea is if God has taken deliberate effort to distinguish between the sexes, does it really make sense to adopt practices that blur, erase, or reverse those distinctions. If God is distinguished between them, why do we blur those distinctions? And then finally, Paul concludes with verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is an FYI, if you will. If you're going to keep on going your own way on this, just know that you're doing so all by yourself. Nobody else does it this way. You'd be the only ones. And so, 
what exactly should we be doing with this? How does this, how does this uh, apply for us today? Well, no, I won't joke. Uh, I was going to say, you know, women, perhaps you should don your hats. Um, but, but in all seriousness, um, I, I think despite our good intentions to faithfully live out the Christian life, much like the Corinthians, we find ourselves adrift when it comes to uh, respecting God's design for gender. And so how do we find our way back? That's what I'd like us to think about. Well, as you know, commentators and preachers have both struggled on this most important point. This is a difficult text. We need to be careful about um, demeaning those who feel conscience-bound to wear hats in church. But I think the key to application here, as difficult as it can be, and it can be genuinely difficult in this text, is to distinguish between the principle and the practice. They're not justified in exactly the same way. The principle is firmly grounded on the one side in the unquestionable and forever hierarchical relationship between man and Christ and the Son and the Father. And on the other, God's original design and enduring creation designed for the sexes in creation before the fall. The practice, on the other hand, while obviously an expression of that enduring principle, seems to have been particularly shaped by Paul's original cultural context and pragmatism. And so what does that do for us? Well, it should shape how we apply this text. Well, the principle is obviously meant to inform our interaction in every culture and every time, the practice that gives expression to it is supposed to be shaped by the particularities of our own time and culture, just like it was for Paul. For instance, just think about, for instance, what it might, how different it might look for us to just carte blanche incorporate this practice of head covering and hair length today. Meanwhile, note that we don't know exactly what that head covering looked like and how it was applied. So, so, so it would be It'd be a stretch to begin with just, just to know how to do it, but, but just imagine, for instance, if we were to do that. In Paul's days, these things, these things meant something. There was actually an intuitive cultural understanding that if a woman wore a head covering, she was recognizing the authority of her husband, and if she, for instance, cut her hair, got a haircut, she was broadcasting the fact that she was a prostitute or an adulteress. And those things, we, we need to acknowledge, don't mean those same things today. And therefore, trying to force them onto today is more likely to result in legalism or confusion or just plain weirdness than anything like the leveraging effect that it would have conveyed most naturally in Paul's day. And so what should we take away from this? Well, the church needs to hold fast to the God-ordained principle that gender matters and strive to give expression to that with practices that fit our own cultural context. And so how? Well, perhaps most simply, in maintaining the practice of male headship. This means respecting the authoritative role that God has given to men in the church and home, and the support role that He has given to their wives. Simple, right? Wish I knew. Well, not, not really. The culture, of course, has problems with this too, just like it would if we were to, to start wearing hats, but, but not out of ignorance, but, 
understanding and then uh, hatred, but also because of how badly the practice of male headship has been twisted into other things in the church. Many have turned male headship into a biblical brand of male chauvinism, and on the other side, submission into a slave-like subjugation of women or a complacent resignation from the use of their gifts. And as a result, some of these women, and it makes some sense, so trapped and devalued there, have sought an answer elsewhere and, and have embraced the modern feminist alternative, which is to say there is no difference between genders and there is absolutely no justification ever of any kind of hierarchical distinction between them. And so the question is, what is, what is this exactly supposed to look like? Well, the answer is found in our returning to the principle that underlies the practice. That's where Paul takes the Corinthians and they're drifting, and it's where we need to go as well. You see, we can see how men are supposed to exercise their authority over their wives and how Christ exercises his authority over men. And similarly, we can see how wives are supposed to submit and support their husbands and how Christ voluntarily submits to his heavenly Father. And so just think about that, how, how far that differs from these distortions of male chauvinism and, and subjugation, resignation, and, and modern feminism. With respect to his exercise of authority, Jesus told his disciples he doesn't use it to lord it over people like the Gentiles do. And why? Well, because he is more concerned for their gain than he is for his own. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so in love, he gives himself up for them, a ransom for many. And we find something similar in how Christ submits to his heavenly Father. Instead of using submission to to manipulate or to cower, he is more concerned for his heavenly Father. And so even when it is for his deepest and most painful loss, which was to drink the cup of his Father's wrath for your salvation, for our salvation, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And so what we find in the faithful expression of the principle behind male headship and a wife's submission is a picture of how Christ accomplished the gospel. That's why Paul is so concerned that we hold on to this principle and maintain it. It's because it's rooted in the core fundamentals of our faith. In the gift of our God-ordained gender roles, our Heavenly Father isn't taking advantage of us or, or trivializing the value of women or escalating the value of men, but He's affording us the opportunity to minister Christ to one another, to display what Christ has done to a world that desperately needs to know Him, and in such a way not just in a dutiful way, but in such a way as to bring honor to ourselves and our entire chain of command and that on both sides for husbands and wives. And so let's not forsake the beautiful God-ordained principle and practice of gender distinctions, but instead let's strive to, to reclaim them, promote them, maintain them, and rejoice in them because this is what God has given for us. It proclaims the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, this is an important teaching. You've made that clear through Paul's words, but it's a a hard one, especially in the midst of, of the contrast with our culture that is screaming that these things don't matter and and ridiculing those in the harshest terms 
who say that they do. And so we pray, Lord, as you reground us in the principle behind these things, that you would give us greater boldness and confidence and security in practicing them, Lord. And we also pray we have distorted these things, Lord. It's distorted male headship into exactly the male chauvinistic uh, subjugation of women and and asking women to, to sit on the side lines and, and, um, and bury their gifts. And so we pray, Lord, for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see husbands, for them to see their wives as, as Christ exercises his authority over men, and, and wives to see their service to their husbands, their support, as how you have exercised and voluntarily submitted yourself to your heavenly Father. And so, Lord, would you use our maintaining this practice for the proclamation of your good news that you have come to save sinners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.